for Sober Chick podcast listeners. This is Heather, and I'm joined by Dana, Lisa, and Meredith. We gather here from around the world to discuss all things related to alcohol addiction, sobriety, and various paths to recovery. We get real about the highs, the lows, and the amazing reality of living a sober life. This podcast is a creative collaboration by women, for women, and for anyone who supports women. Welcome everyone to Four Sober Chicks podcast. Joining me today is Lisa Meredith and uh, Dana as always. And we have a special, very special guest. I'm super excited. We have Jennifer Storm that is joining us. And I'm gonna do a quick little intro. She's um, an award-winning victim's right uh, expert and advocate and a best-selling author of six books. Today, she has over 23 years of active recovery and has spent her lifetime advocating for pic- victims of crime. Um, I'm going to definitely let you tell your story, but before we start, I think that it's really important to just kind of put, not necessarily trigger warning, but we're going to be talking about sexual violence. We're going to be talking about rape, maybe incest. Um, and if you feel emotionally triggered, please stop listening, go for a walk, do grounding exercises, talk to a friend, talk to a therapist. Um, this is an incredibly important topic, but we don't want it to have any kind of negative repercussions for you. So please take a break if you feel like it. So I had the amazing opportunity to hear Jennifer speak in Miami for the She Recovered Professional um, Symposium that was hosted with um, Hazelton Betty Ford. And um, so I'm there and I'm listening to you speak and I felt like I was hit by a lightning bolt. One, I am also a sexual violence survivor. Um, so you really, your story resonated with me, but what really kind of shook me to the core was what you've done with it and how you've turned this into a lifelong career of advocacy and your writing and all of those things. And I also have dedicated my life to being a therapist and a coach and, and um, advocating for women in recovery. And so um, it was just so amazing to, I think you're a true role model. So I really appreciate you for all your hard work and taking something um, that was, you know, really difficult and horrible and turning it into something that's absolutely incredible. So I would love for you to share your story with us. Sure. Well, thank you first and foremost for having me. And I, um, I appreciate the trigger warning because there, there are a lot of different components of my story that um, when told, you know, you never know what's going to hit somebody. Um, and so, you know, there are certain aspects of my story that, that can really trigger individuals and, and kind of throw people off balance. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think I need to update my bio. I'm in my 24th year of, of long-term recovery, which I'm, I'm coming up on 25 years, which feels ridiculous. Like, <laughs> But, um, you know, and most of it is by pure kind of luck, if you will, and my ability to find my own path. So, I mean, I was sexually assaulted. I was raped when I was 12. So I was very young. It happened in the eighties, which was a time when we were 
just starting to see the birth of the rape crisis movement and advocates were just starting to kind of pepper themselves in hospitals and places like that. Now today you would most likely, hopefully in any jurisdiction, if you were raped and you went to a hospital to get a rape kit, there would be an advocate dispatched and there would be a specialized nurse that would do your examination. That did not happen in my case. I was raped by a stranger. Um, and we, when we went to the hospital, we had nobody. We had no one explaining what was happening. I didn't know what was about to happen. And I ended up going through this rape exam and it was a secondary violation. I mean, it was like being raped again, except in this case, you know, I, I like remembered every detail and, and there wasn't that person. I think we don't realize how vitally important advocates and support people are. You know, because not only are they there to offer comfort and empathy, but they're there to give you vital details. Like I say in the field of victim advocacy, what we do best is we predict and we prepare. And because understanding what's happening to you is just as important as understanding what's going to happen next. And so I didn't know why they were taking hair out of my head and scraping my fingernails. And all of a sudden my favorite items of clothing, like I was wearing this oversized rugby swatch um, shirt that were like really big in the eighties, you know, and all this stuff is being placed in a bag and like labeled evidence. And no one told me that my body was now evidence. I didn't understand that. And I had never had any form of sexual engagement encounter or education. So here I am having two very horrific, distinct sexual experiences, you know, whether you want to call an OBGY exam a sexual experience or not. I mean, it is, someone is inside of you in multiple places um, and, and nobody telling me what this was. And my mom, um, a victim of child abuse and sexual assault herself, who never disclosed, never got help. She didn't know what to do with it. And if anything, you know, what I realized later on is that I was just an affront to her own issues, right? So here she is sitting with me and I couldn't, I can't even imagine all the triggers and all the trauma that was coming up for her. Um, you know, my mom and I had a pretty sordid relationship and that's really detailed in my first memoir, Blackout Girl. Um, so she did the best that she could. I mean, her initial response to learning I was raped was she, she smacked me. So it wasn't the greatest, most empathetic response. Um, and so that shame and that guilt that immediately follows sexual uh, assaults for victims was just really thick for me. Because not only was I getting it from myself and the experience, but then my parents just didn't know what to do with me. Um, and so I watched my family kind of just slowly fall apart. And of course, I assigned all of that to myself, that it was my fault, that it was my, I was to blame. And it was this thing that happened to me that I must have caused because look at the wreckage that it's causing in my life. Now, there were other reasons that my parents' marriage was falling apart and, you know, other reasons that my brother started peeling off into their own substance use paths. But when you're 12 years old, you don't, you don't have all that kind of analytical thinking. Um, so I was just kind of left to my own dysfunctional devices to deal with this like thing. Um, we did go through the courts. Again, I had no preparation. I had no understanding of what was happening. So I did have to take the witness stand um, at a preliminary hearing and testify about this encounter that I had. And then it just kind of stopped and no one else talked to me about it again. Um, and then months later, I heard my parents talking about something about sentencing, which I didn't even know what that was. And all my dad would tell me was, oh, he's in jail. You don't ever have to worry about him again. And so in, in the interim, I am suffering from PTSD without understanding or acknowledging what that is. I didn't have a diagnosis or a label to put on it. I just knew I couldn't sleep. 
I was up every night, all night long. Um, I kept waiting for this, this man to come back and like get me. I was, I lived under a constant cloak of fear and irrational um, scarcity of support and comfort and, and trust. And so I didn't know how to deal with that. Um, and so I started to kind of dabble in drugs and alcohol because that seemed to be like a good solution. And it, it made the feelings go away, right? Like I had all these, I talk about it in the book. There's like this catechism of emotions that I couldn't understand and being 12 years old and having a traumatized brain. It's not like I could put my feelings that I was having with any of the circumstances that I experienced. Like your brain doesn't have that ability, right? Whether it's because of adolescence and development but also trauma, right? So even adults who are traumatized, that whole frontal lobe coming offline thing is real and it happens and your brain kind of splits and you can't put these two things together until you go through some form of healing. So I just didn't know what to do. So I started drinking, started doing drugs and I was, you know, it was the eighties. My parents had a fully stocked liquor cabinet. It wasn't hard to get drugs from friends. And so I slowly dabbled. Alcohol was always the first and when I picked up one, I picked up 20. Like there was, it never resulted differently for me. And I come from a lineage of substance abusers and users. So I was, you know, definitely biologically, you know, susceptible to the disease of addiction. I absolutely believe that it is a disease uh, because I could, I could tell you in my 10 years of use, there was a handful of times that I was able to only drink a couple. And the reason I remember them so vividly is because it was so rare and I usually would force myself to come and then like would obsess about the fact that I wasn't out drinking. Right. So it wasn't, an, it wasn't a thing that I could actually really do without an extreme exertion of will. And it only happened maybe three times in my whole use history. So, um, so I became very quickly a blackout drinker. Um, that's why my memoirs blackout girl, that's who I was. I drank in excess. I drank in oblivion, you know, till I was completely, um, you know, on the floor, unconscious, passed out, throwing up. Um, that unfortunately would then result in my being harmed again, right? Because I, I didn't have control over my myself after a certain point of use. So as I was dabbling a little bit in drugs, someone turned me on to, to cocaine. And I realized when I did cocaine, I didn't black out. And when I did cocaine, I could drink as much as I wanted to, as much as I was able. And so this became like a really toxic combination for me. And I, it, it got to the point where if I was drinking, I knew like, it was almost like a threat assessment. Like, it's like, oh, I can't get blacked out. I can't put myself at risk. So I, I would be on a mission to find cocaine. Um, and, and, you know, there were lots of other traumas that happened in my life over the course of that time that I just kind of began to layer upon each other. And I was eventually introduced to crack cocaine. So at like 16, 17, I became addicted to crack cocaine. Um, and as you can imagine, it didn't, it didn't lead to a very productive kind of <laughs> function for me. And, you know, my life just kept spiraling and spiraling. And, you know, there was that part of me um, you know, prior to the rape, I was a straight A student. I had perfect attendance. I had the Presidential Academic Achievement Award. Like I was a bright kid. I was, you know, I had goals. So I think that that person was always underneath all of the mess. She just couldn't get out. Like there was just, there was no light accessible. Um, and so I just kept spiraling and spiraling and spiraling. And as the stories go, you guys all know this. I lost jobs. I lost lovers. I lost this. I lost that. 
Um, and eventually it, it got so bad that um, it was actually the death of my mom. So my mom died of breast cancer when she was 50. I was 22 and she, she died in my arms. And so it was that kind of pivotal event. That was July 9th of 1997. I basically, I was working at a bar. I was living above that bar because I was super convenient. And the line cook was my crack dealer. So I was barely existing in this like horrific space for the months preceding my mom's death. And eventually it got untenable. And, you know, I think you get to a point sometimes, or at least for me, my trauma got so big that there just, there wasn't enough drugs and alcohol. Like I, there were, there wasn't enough to conceal it. And I, I often refer to it as this like blender that was happening inside of me. And the drugs were always the lid. Well, my mom's death just took the lid off and it just, I, I was spilling out all over the place. Um, and so I tried to kill myself, um, in a really kind of brutal attempt. And, um, you know, I was really fortunate that my brothers were able to come and find me and take me to a hospital and they saved my life. Um, and it was that point uh, when I woke up the next day that I made, I guess, the admission that the drugs were no longer the solution, that they had actually, in fact, been the problem. You know, I didn't know that for 10 years. They were my solution. They got me through. They had they gave me the ability to manage the mess until they didn't. Right. And that's always the story. <laughs> and so I went to rehab. And, you know, it wasn't a trauma-informed rehab. This was in 1997. We still don't have trauma-informed rehabs, in my opinion. That's part of why I still do what I do and, and um, lecture and, and travel the country, because I'm still deeply concerned that we're only putting Band-Aids on bullet wounds. We're not really getting to the source. You know, nine, over 90% of women um, have been sexually assaulted before they walk into a rehabilitation facility. And so we know this, but yet these the rehabilitation facilities aren't saying, well, wait a minute, maybe for the night, these 90% of the women, we might, we should maybe look at this sexual abuse history and actually talk about that and make that a part of the treatment. And instead the treatment becomes all about abstinence and 12 steps. And I'm not saying that those aren't really good, effective, um, helpful tools. They are, but they're only as good as the work that you also give that person to do. And if we're not going to do the work on sexual violence and talk about that, that impact, then we're, we're just, again, it's this band-aid that will eventually flap off. Um, I intuitively began to do that for myself. Um, I don't know where I really got the understanding that I think it was this girl came into rehab when I was there and she she was in recovery. It was one of those, like, you know, they bring in somebody who's been through the system and she had said something that, that still to this day is one of my mantras that her secrets kept her sick. And I was, and that really hit me. Cause I was like, Oh, all these things I've been running from all these things that I've never wanted to talk about that I've never wanted to identify. These are actually the things that she's telling me are keeping me sick. It just clicked for me. And I began to do my own work. And then I built upon that work. And then as I got sober longer and I got more educated and I went to school and then I began to work in the field of victim services, I slowly started putting all these pieces together and realizing that these have to be together. Like you have to do the work on both fronts for full long-term recovery. I relate to so many things that you just said and <laughs> trying to digest it all in my head and, and um, yeah, and, and similarly, I did tons and tons and tons of therapy, but I did it while in active addiction. Mm -hmm. And for me, when the, when the, you know, I hit that place where I had to make a change, I went to a treatment center as well, but I found one that had a trauma program, but they operated separately. So yeah. I did the 90 day or the 30 days of, of alcohol and addiction. 
And then I went over to the trauma program and stayed there. And that was game changing. However, um, I think a lot of trauma programs, I agree with you, actually re-traumatize the victims if they don't quite know what they're doing. But it was the start for me to be able to really like heal in a way. And then I call it my volumes. I just pull one volume down at a time and continue to work and do it. Um, but until I started to do that work sober, those years and years and years and years and years of therapy meant nothing um, mm -hmm. to me. So at this point, do you guys have other questions before I go to the next piece that I want to ask Jennifer about? Well, and statistically, I mean, I'm looking at five of us, three of the five have experienced sexual abuse at some point, you know, so out there statistically, when you hear that stuff being thrown out, like this is a live example of how prevalent it is. Um, you know, mine came from my mom's boyfriend, you know, and, and there's a lot of underlying triggers that when I quit drinking, I didn't deal with my trauma until years later. I didn't think I had trauma. And I think that that's a huge um, component because while I was sober, I was still very angry. I still had a very short fuse and I did not know why. And I was like, no, that stuff, I've, de I've dealt with that. Yeah. I'm good. I've made peace. But until you like actually dig into it, I don't think that you are able to fully experience recovery or sobriety. Um, in our last episode that we just recorded, I mean, if you don't deal with the trauma as minute as it may be, it, it doesn't have to be this huge thing. You're going to have to deal with it at some point um, in order to live like in full recovery. Yeah, because the behaviors are there, right? Like, because you're you're still wired in that way. Like, I was, and this is not uncommon for sexual assault survivors. We just don't talk about it as much. I was incredibly promiscuous, and so I thought my body was this thing that wasn't owned by me, and it was a commodity for affection and love. And so I used it that way because that's what I was taught, and it was constantly reinforced, right? Like, if I didn't, like, trust me, there were times in my history that I would say no, and then the person would do it anyway. So my no meant nothing, right? So when I got clean and sober, I carried that into sobriety. And I was like, I was the girl in the rooms that was like trying to get with every person and was like wearing the, you know, the, the, the slinky clothes and like trying like, look at me, look at me, because that was all I knew of love and affection and attention. And it wasn't until I started really diving into all of that, that I was like, oh, like that's where that's coming from. And then under underneath all that, like I had to then dig up the one secret is that I was gay and I had known I was gay since kindergarten, but I had all this negative messaging around that. And then I had all these horrible experiences that I just thought, well, I'm supposed to be straight. Like gay is not a thing you're allowed to be, right? I mean, thankfully we live in a sort of kind of quasi different world. <laughs> At least there's better, there's safer spaces, even though like meta-wise we have work to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think you're still going to have those behaviors because your brain is wired with that trauma. And until you start really unwiring and rewiring your brain in that way, 12 steps won't get you there. They yep. just won't. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And for, you know, I had all that wiring up into the point of, you know, my last assault and I thought it was my fault. Like, I thought that I had, um, 
Yeah, I took full responsibility. I thought I had cheated on my husband. And, you know, mm-hmm. like there were things that in active addiction, I should not have been in bars until five o'clock in the morning. You know, that part is my responsibility, but the rest of it, but I didn't understand that. I really like that commodity part. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand I had worth. I didn't understand the fact that I said no meant anything and said no multiple times. Like I, so I took it all on and told my husband that I cheated on him, you know, like, I think that there's so much stigma around both of these things, addiction and sexual assault, that it gets very convoluted for the person who's experiencing it. And, you know, like we don't present in the way that it's what's really happening, right? Um, I was lucky enough that my partner, when I said, no, look, like this, this was not, this is not, I wasn't cheating. Like, this is what really happened. He was like, okay, then let's, we'll deal with this now. But he could have not believed me, you know, because I presented in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. So you take this, you go to rehab, you start to kind of um, advocate for victims and, and do all of those things. Did you ever find that that made it harder for you to heal? The work you mean like digging up the trauma yeah no because i think it it helped me understand so just like the 12 steps helped me understand my addiction one second hey buddy i'm just on a call okay sorry my son just walked in um it, it the learning about my trauma and starting to unpack all that stuff really helped inform the why and, and helped me understand the complexities of my personality and what drove some of those behaviors. Like it really helps with the behavior, right? Um, to, to put a name to it, to help understand it. And so in that way, it, it actually, no, it helped it. It made it easier because I was able to understand it. And I don't know about you, but like for me, if I can layer intellect onto a feeling, it takes the, the pull of the feeling away. So I was like, oh, I understand it now. So now I can work to, to correct it. I might not do it perfectly, but at least now I know what it is and I can kind of go from that point. Yeah, I think it speaks to the amount of work you had done to that point, because I think a lot of people, what do we call them, wounded healers. I'm one of them. You know, we go into these situations and we're trying to do good and it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm literally hearing somebody retell my story and I don't know how to handle this, you know, so that was, I was kind of curious about that going from where you had been through to uh, into the advocacy and the, and working with victims. Cause it is very heavy. You've done it for a long, long time. Yeah. How do you yeah. take care of yourself? Oh, so many ways, all the ways. Um, and I didn't learn that early on. So I went into victim advocacy pretty early in recovery, probably five, six, seven years into recovery. I started victim advocacy work and I didn't understand the concept of self-care it, you know, I, I, I was good about like attending meetings and calling my sponsor and doing those things, but I didn't really understand that there was going to be this kind of ongoing need, right? So I was good at, I was really good at finding ways to access emotion because that was never easy to me. It didn't come easy to me. It wasn't until I started getting exposed to more trauma through the work of victim advocacy, because ultimately you're going to be traumatized by other people's stories. It's impossible not to. And I kind of had like a little bit of a breakdown. I remember one, one weekend specifically, I had responded to two homicides back to back. 
And the first one obviously was so incredibly draining. And so when I got, I had gotten home and I was just about to fall asleep and I got the call for the second one. And I remember like just dropping to my knees and being like, I can't, I can't do this. And it, it, it wasn't in that moment that I actually started to like do any real work, but it was later started running and I noticed like, oh, running really helps. And one time I was at the gym and I was watching the news and I was all of a sudden, like I was on the news. So there was like seven TVs in front of me and there I am on the treadmill and I see myself talking about a homicide that I had responded to. And I just started, I turned it up to like 7.5 and I just started running and exhausted myself. And then it was within that exhaustion that I was like, I found peace. So I was like, oh, this is what I need. And so high intensity workouts are must for me because anger has always been my go-to emotion. And the only way that I can rinse myself or synthesize that anger is through exercise. And then I also need stillness. And so I've learned meditation and, and exercise are musts for me. Um, and so every morning, I mean, I set my alarm, I get up at 530 in the morning. The first thing I do is I get on my bike, I do a, a pretty intense spin class, and then I meditate. And then I contemplate my day. <laughs> and now I've added Wordle in there just to keep my brain, you know, fresh. But yeah, I, so it's those are my top go tos. And then just reading, you know, taking time to like, go, be in, be in nature and hike and things like that. But if I'm not daily, you know, it's that saying in recovery that we're only as healthy as our spiritual maintenance of our program. So how long was it? Yes, we've had. Okay, honey, I'll clean it up. Okay, sweetheart. Our dog went to the bathroom in the house. He's so <laughs> Life happens, as we know, in, in these worlds. Yes, and as I said, we're we're moms or stepmoms, or we all are, you know, you know, multi- faceted women so we get it <laughs> um so yeah I, I find that part kind of really important and I didn't do it well for a lot of like you know different parts of my career which um so I'm really trying to figure out that formula as well for myself yeah. but um it's a lot of trial and error you gotta yeah. try some things and see like I have a friend right now who's really struggling she's like I don't understand how did you find your thing and I'm like I literally had to run through a list of what, what do I like, what works, and then try all these different things and just cross off the list and find that thing. For me, it was, you could feel it inside. It was finding that thing that allowed me to breathe deeper. And then it was like, okay, this is what I need to do consistently, but it took me a while. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also think it's too, it like changes too over time and it changes too what you have, but you also have to continue to practice it. Like when you find that thing, you know, that's when you're in the maintenance phase for sure. Yes. <laughs> yep. Um, so I'd like to transition. If do any of you guys have questions to this point? All right. They're just like, we're along for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm noticing so many like similarities, like you were saying, Heather and, and Meredith and, um, you know, just the, that exhaustion you need to find in, in the exercise. Um, I was a, previous ultra runner that I hope to get back to, but I'm injured. So I have found the spin class at five 30 in the morning as well. Um, and it, it does, it helps, you know, it helps get that deeper breath and also gets out everything that needs to, to get out. So I appreciate you talking about that. And also Dana grew up in the same neck of the woods that you I'm did. Doylestown. <laughs> Oh, no way. 
Hey, okay. I'm thinking of Prussia right now. So nice. <laughs> right on. Yeah. And I grew up in PA too. So I mean, it was a lot of like, but I'm in Western Pennsylvania. So it's a lot right of on. crossover. And you're like, you know, when you hear things, you're like, oh, that's so Oh, I know. Close. I, worked, I worked in Allentown for so long. So I mean, yeah, it's just oh, wow. crazy. Mm-hmm. crazy crazy but yeah and even the time frames you know like like going to school like I graduated in 87 so I, I was right there with you the whole way yeah. in the book <laughs> yeah and I was 93 so when you talk about different like elements of fashion I'm just like oh yeah and I think there was this weird like just Pennsylvania had its own thing going on that yeah, I checked it's- that no one else did hair Good hair yes <laughs> Yes, Pennsylvania always has its own thing going on, doesn't it? <laughs> Still does. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, did you ever do this? And they're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm like, and it's Come Jimmy's. On. It's not sprinkles. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the difference between Eastern and Western, good luck. Like, you oh, know, yeah, right. really will fight all day long. Yeah, so. <laughs> For sure. So I want to kind of transition to your newest book, which is Awakening Blackout Girl. And, and, um, you know, why don't you tell us what that's all about? Because I feel like that ties in between what we've been talking about and the self-care and the, and the work. So for years, I've been doing trainings, traveling the world, doing these trainings on making the connections between um, victimization, trauma, and and addiction. And, you know, I've written a couple of books. I wrote a book on that specifically. I wrote two, one specific to the Sandusky case, because I was working very closely with those survivors and realized like I wanted something out there for, for victims. But one of the things that I had really started to understand and appreciate, I was filming a documentary before COVID on this and trying to find treatment facilities that got it, that understood and made these connections between sexual violence specifically and that trauma and that being the springboard into substance use. And I couldn't really find at least not accessible ones, right? There were a couple like the really bougie, if you had like a hundred thousand dollars, you know, maybe you could go get that, this kind of treatment, but in terms of accessibility for your average person, it just wasn't there. And so I went to my publisher. So Hazelden is my publisher. And I said, you know, I want to write, we were retooling Blackout Girl. We were going to put it back out um, as a second edition because ironically, that book came out during the height of the recession in 2008. So we were like, oh, we weren't able to really get it out there as much as we wanted. So we thought we'd put it back out and lo and behold, it came out during um, COVID. So I suck in terms of, um, you know, picking the right time to publish a book, but So I went to them and I said, I, you know, I want to create something. I want to create a guide or a program. And I was originally calling it sexual assault survivors anonymous. And I wanted to basically create a new like 12 step program. And I was really from psychiatrists, 12 step folks. I was basically advised, don't go that route that, you know, it's the, the, the route that you're talking about looks different. It's outside of the rooms, like shape it differently. And so that kind of got me thinking more about, I've always had the most success training people when I use my own story. And so I thought, well, all right, I'm just going to put another memoir out, but it's going to be with the tenants that I would have created this program with. So it's Awakening Blackout Girl and it's the second memoir, but it's really the healing story. So if Blackout Girl is like the what happened and, and how I got into sobriety. This is the, you know, how am I almost at 25 years and still, you know, I've been able to do this. And so I wrote that book and then now I've created a curriculum off of that. So I have a 10 week curriculum that I'm now working with some rape crisis programs and some mental health facilities to implement. Um, So yeah, I'm really proud of that book because it's really, I think, 
I'm always moved by personal stories that speaks to me. If I can kind of like walk next to somebody through their journey, it helps me understand more. So that's how I framed it. Um, and yeah, I'm really, I'm really proud of it. I don't think it's gotten the exposure that it needed. Cause like I said, it came out in October of 2020. So, you know, I did the best that I could on zoom to kind of, you know, carry the message. And now that I'm finding that signings and events are starting to come back, people are like, oh, well, that book's not in the release anymore. So it's really hard to like find a space for it, but I'm really proud of it. Well, I, I've started reading it. I'm going to, I'm going to do the process because I think that, you know, we use the analogy of the onion all the time in recovery. I don't know why it has to be an onion, but well, whatever it is. Um, but I find that like, at, you know, through life, it's where my volumes is that I need to keep doing this unpeeling, you know, I need to kind of keep doing this work. So I'm going to go along and do it as well. Um, but what I've read so far has been really, um, it's really incredible, you know, and, and the positivity too, that kind of is in there, the hope, the inspiration that you have. I mean, we all lose in sexual violence, we lose control. It's taken from us, you know, and the single most healing message is that I have control over what happens to me and what I do. And, and I think yeah. it's really well tooled in that way that it's like, okay, if you need to take a minute, take a minute, like you have control, if you need to do this over a week, like, um, those things I know were very intentional on your part. And I think it really speaks to kind of um, that you know what you're doing in that, in that realm. Um, a lot of people try to jump in the trauma pool and to help and they don't know how to swim in it. So um, I think what you've put together is really, really well done. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm going to hand it over to the ladies for questions or comments or thoughts. I was just going to say, you were talking about how, you know, you, you basically had like a rebirth, like a, an awakening when, when you got sober and you found your purpose, you yeah. know, and you found your thing and, and now look at you and look at what you're doing. It's absolutely incredible. And I think that's sort of the message that we want to get out there to people listening to this podcast. It's like, look at what can open up, you know, for you and for other people when you're able to take control back of your life. You know, yeah. it's, it's just amazing. It's such, your story is, is amazing. And the fact that you're sharing it, I agree with you. The more you get that out there, the more you're impacting others. So I just think what you're doing is amazing. It's just Thank wonderful. You. Thank you. I appreciate it. Recovering out loud. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I remember when I first wrote Blackout Girl, like I got really shamed in the rooms because it was this like, oh, you're violating the traditions and, you know, how can you, how can you identify yourself? Because if you remember, like Anonymous had its own secrecy, right? It had its own, and there was a purpose for that, but there really, there wasn't a real space for you to be an outspoken, living out loud, recovering person. Thankfully, now we've realized like, oh, wait, like if other, if we really want people to find recovery, like we have to illustrate it. We have to let people know that they're that hey we're out here um and so yeah it's 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 interesting the the way it was back then versus how it is now and thankfully it's the way it is now that's what we're doing we're trying to break that stigma you know yes. like yes. break it down yeah yeah, yeah but i came back from the conference i had like this panic moment i was like we've said 12 we've said aa i've said AA because i am a 12 stepper you know and i'm like yes 
I'm not supposed, I'm literally Googling like different places that have mentioned. And I was so, they were, they was they were great. They were very supportive. Yeah. And I was like, I think we have to re-record because we did um, an episode on all the different ways you get sober. And I was yeah. like, we have to re-record it. And I have to only revert to it as 12 steps. And then I was like, after about a week, I was like, wait. Yeah. <laughs> really? Who wrote this? Who wrote this? Yeah. Always go back. Who wrote this? Yeah. 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 Hey, yeah. Well, yeah. She she was like, we need to re-record. And I was like, Heather, <laughs> they get offended by that. They don't need to listen to the podcast. Right. 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 I'm a big buffet approach. Take what you like, leave what you don't. Exactly. So. Exactly. We're all, yeah. like I said, we're all multifaceted and like, I need to have a variety of things and I, you know, I do them every day because without my, I put my recovery first because without it, I have nothing else. Yeah. Um, and what works for one doesn't work for the other, you know, exactly. and that's what this podcast is all about is like, so you've come to talk about sexual violence and, and, um, the impact of that. Some of our viewers, this will resonate, but then we all kind of embrace all different types of ways of addressing that and destigmatizing that. And, um, well, that it's not, it's not a one size fits all. I mean, I think that that's been the biggest thing, like the feedback that I've gotten is someone was like, well, I thought I had to be like a raging alcoholic on the verge of homelessness in order for me to admit I had a problem. And I, and we've said this time and time again, is like, if you have the slightest thought that you have an unhealthy relationship with drugs or alcohol, yeah, that's enough, you yeah. know, and to not be like, well, I guess I got to be like under the car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I need to be run over twice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The qualifiers that that people, but as you know, it's also our way of work of talking our way out of the work too, right? It's really easy to do that. But you're right. Like for so long, the stereotypical illustrations of an addict or an alcoholic were really rigid and, and you had to have certain qualifications. You had to have a really, you know, you had to come in with a really bad bottom, man. If you didn't almost die, then you, they, you've got more research to do. And it's like, no, I don't no, I don't think that, I don't think we need to do that. We, we don't need to say you have, you have to have more harm inflicted upon you to have happiness and healing. So yeah. let's just maybe start with the, the desire to have happiness and healing and go from there. Well, my mom was a raging alcoholic and she, it was the, you know, empty bottles of handles of vodka under her bed that would like cling together. Like that was my version of what an alcoholic looked like. And then when I looked at my drinking, I'm like, oh, I drink wine, but, and I'm not doing what my mom did. So therefore I'm fine. You're like, good. Yeah. <laughs> I had one definition of what it looked like and I based what I was doing on that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that kept me, it kept me out of recovery for a long time because as a therapist, I was seeing people and, you know, I was like, I'm not that bad. And I, I still laugh at myself, but I went to, in rehab, we had speakers come in for rehab as well. And this woman did like a 45 minute drunk log and just like, like, it was just like blow you back. Like, holy shit. And so I went into group the next day. I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not that bad. And they were like, really? And so they just challenged me and they were like, let's review. <laughs> what, and so, yeah. But yeah, but it was the same thing. It's like, well, if I'm not like her, then I'm not, I don't have a problem. So I'm good, you know, yeah. but 
Well, I think the baseline should be, are you happy? Yeah. Right. Right. Do you know who you are? Do you feel authentic? And are you happy? And if you're not, then there's something that you're doing that needs to change. So who cares? Like, don't qualify. It doesn't have to meet a definition. It's just, you know, if there's something in your life that you're doing that is not serving you, then let's shift and see what you need to do to, to do something different. Yeah. And that's the, and then when I do talks and workshops and I tell my story, it's always, you know, it's always relative. The rock bottom is mm-hmm. always relative and oh, it's yeah. unique and it's specific to yourself. It is not anything that everybody else is going to experience. Um, and that's really important for people to understand. Um, and I like that analogy about being happy. Um, you know, and, and I think that that, that could go, go over for people who don't even drink <laughs> that are not happy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I wrote picking up the pieces without picking up, I didn't specify alcohol and drugs. I went into like food, sex, other yeah. behaviors because we, you all, we all know your addictive personality can bleed into other things. Maybe you're a compulsive gambler or a shopper. If it's destructive and it's not serving a purpose in your life and it's a barrier, then, then why not seek to change it and acknowledge it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, I love the NA, um, you know, powerless over thoughts and feelings. It wasn't powerless over alcohol. It wasn't powerless over drugs. It was anything that I could use to numb and not have to deal with feelings. And if for me, it started at food and and it was men and it was work and it was all of those things Um, because that's really the core of it, right? Is not being able to manage emotions. Well, and you look at our day and age and it's sex and alcohol promotion wherever you look. Everywhere. So for me, that cycle kept me in what I was doing so I was like well this is what I'm supposed to be doing based on all of the advertisements that I'm seeing and you know I mean it's it's crazy how we are completely driven majority Mm -hmm. of people driven by what we see on social media um, advertisements like the whole nine yeah And you want to, so I live in a Muslim country. I do not have commercials because of the way I watch TV. I go back to the U.S. and I just like jaw drop 15 minutes of like, it's food, it's alcohol, it's, you know, condom ads, it's some kind of pharmaceutical. And it, I'm just like, what is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's mind blowing to see it when you, in, you know, I don't see it at all. I don't ever have to deal with I just watch commercials. Jennifer, what's the best way for people to find you? Sure. Uh, I'm probably most active on Instagram and it's just blackout girl author. Um, and that feeds into my Facebook, which is the same, um, same name, but yeah. And then I have a website, which is just my name, jenniferstorm.com. Perfect. Well, when we post this, we'll make sure to have all those links up there. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you guys so very much. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thank you for your time. Yeah. For your flexibility. Yeah, thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you and wish you the best on your sober adventures. For more information and details on upcoming episodes, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at Four Sober Chicks. That's number four Sober Chicks. We welcome your feedback and look forward to being with you on the next episode.